Welcome to episode 40 of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and today I have a guest with me. So, rather than speaking with our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the center, I'll be speaking with Leighton Gray, a Calgary-based lawyer with the firm Gray Woke Spencer LLP. Mr. Gray has undertaken many cases related to lockdowns and vaccine mandates, some with the Justice Center and some with other organizations, and some on his own. Regardless of who he's working with or for, I would describe him as one of the good guys, fighting the good fight for constitutional rights and freedoms across this nation, troubled as it is in every corner by government overreach. Welcome, sir. And I guess we'll start with the most important stuff first. What's happening with the challenges to the vaccine mandates? Well, first of all, Kevin, thank you for having me on the program. I'm grateful for the opportunity to get some more information out there to the public. Uh, I think it's obvious that a lot of relevant information is being suppressed, is not being provided to people through the mass media. Just by way of preface, a couple of things. Firstly, I'm not necessarily anti-vax. In fact, uh, because of the work that I've done with the Justice Center on some cases, including the Ingram constitutional challenge that's upcoming in Alberta, I've been able to read thousands of pages of science. And based upon the information that I've received from really uh, credible scientists like Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who is a teacher of medicine, professor of medicine at Stanford University in California, the, the vaccines are a relatively safe medicine. And for me as a lawyer, that isn't really the point. Um, the vaccine mandates are a liberty issue, and that's where I come in, and that's why I feel very strongly about these cases, and that's why I've gotten involved. Also, by way of preface, from working with and dealing with the cases brought against the government over lockdowns, one of the things, one of the distinguishing features of vaccine mandates it's important to remember, uh, or that I've noticed, is that two things really. Number one, the vaccine mandates are focused on workers. Um, they're not focused on homeless people, people who are drug addicts or in jails or things like that. They're also not focused on the political class or the uber elites. These are the everyday, I call them the best Canadians, the hardworking people, law-abiding people, God-fearing people, tend to be somewhat right of center in their political views, but not necessarily so. But the people who are raising families, volunteering in communities, serving on school boards, things like that, these are the people who are being targeted by vaccine mandates. And that should be of concern to all of us in terms of living in and maintaining a free and democratic society. That's one thing. Secondly, in doing a lot of these uh, lockdown cases uh, over the past year or more, there was broad disagreement among members of the public over things like the efficacy of masking or social distancing or, um, you know, whether or not we should have schools and churches and stores and restaurants open. The vaccine mandate has become a rallying post. People who might have disagreed about these other types of lockdown measures and whether or not they're necessary, it's drawing together tens of thousands of people who understand clearly that the vaccine mandate is a liberty issue. It is about the dehumanization of workers. So individuals, who, whether they're in public or private service, employment, individuals who interviewed for a job usually are highly trained, highly skilled, well-educated. They were selected uh, through a competitive process as individuals according to their individual characteristics. They often worked for a long time and were very productive employees, sometimes senior management people, uh, skilled tradespeople. Uh, suddenly, uh, shockingly, these people uh, are being told, we don't care who you are. We don't care what you've done. We don't care about your individual capacities. We don't care how loyal you are. Stick out your arm. All we want from you now is compliance. And if you won't give us compliance, you must go. And this is hitting workers, literally, Canadian workers, literally, where they live. It hits directly upon their charter guaranteed life, life, liberty, and security of the person, their right to do that. It hits all three, really. 
And so this is the really the, the, the locus of the debate is how can this happen? How can this be happening? How can our governments, especially our governments and our private employers, be really weaponized politically to attack the financial security, financial autonomy, and by extension, their political autonomy, because we know historically they're inextricably tied together. You will never have a free country where individuals are free, where they do not also have, enjoy economic freedom. Uh, and, and I think that is really what we're dealing with, with uh, these vaccine mandates. That's at the heart of the struggle. And the people I've had the pleasure to talk to, and I've talked to really hundreds, perhaps even thousands, if you count all the, the well-attended Zoom calls, uh, they all understand this very clearly. They, they get it. And this is a stand that they understand must be made. This is what Benjamin Franklin talked about a couple hundred years ago when he famously wrote, uh, if one is willing to trade some freedom for security, you'll end up with neither and deserve neither. That's really what's happening here. Workers are being asked, expected really, demanded to surrender their liberty, the security, the integrity of their bodies in exchange for the security of a job. And it's wrong. It's legally wrong. It's morally wrong. It's fundamentally against the the Canadian Constitution, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So that's the, you know, just by way of preface, that's the basis of, of the complaint, uh, the basis of all the the legal action. Um, in terms of what's happening with these cases, a couple of things are of note. Firstly, many, many of these workers are unionized workers. The CN workers are one example. These people are generally highly skilled workers, welders, uh, machinists, electrical workers, people of that nature. The types of workers who are are in high demand in Canada and actually have been in shortage in our economy for decades. Uh, we've been trying as a country to try and attract people with these skills to Canada for a long time. So it's somewhat incongruous and shocking that uh, that these workers are being targeted and that they are so suddenly disposable to companies like CN, CP, Air Canada. All of these companies are, are really imposing the same uh, type of um, mandates upon their workers. So that is in and of itself is of concern. But the unionized workers are dealing with the double problem, the double whammy, in that when they are going to their unions, because oftentimes they are, well, invariably unionized workers are contracted to through a union under a collective bargaining agreement. And uh, some of the listeners may not understand what that means. Essentially, what happens is when you are a worker and you're a part of a union, uh, under a collective, uh, under a collective bargaining agreement, you essentially contract out your employment rights to the union, and the union takes on the duty of taking up your representation, representing your rights, your interests, as against the employer. Historically, the unions, of course, have been a way to level out the playing field, as it were, so that big employers, industrial employers, uh, don't exploit workers. Uh, this is the theory behind unionized work anyway, or behind unions. And so that's the idea. But in this situation... Workers are complaining to their unions saying that they don't want these vaccine mandates and they're grieving them and saying this is a, a violation of their employment rights, uh, that it's a, it's an unwanted change to the terms of their employment, that they are human rights violations. And the unions, uh, most often, with some exceptions, are saying to them that they've received an independent legal opinion which tells them that uh, their grievance will not be successful if it's taken through arbitration and that therefore the unions are not even going to advance the grievance that has wow. been that has been the chorus that we have heard from workers now that's starting to to shift there was a case um, recently in ontario a union brought a case before uh, was able to bring a grievance before a labor arbitrator and there was a decision actually on november the 11th and there was a labor arbitrator in ontario who, although uh, that arbitrator expressed strong opinions about the unvaccinated, whether or not it's wise to be vaccinated, that arbitrator nonetheless found that these unpaid leaves of ab absence, which is what employers are doing, they're saying where the worker refuses to declare their vaccination status and where they refuse to become vaccinated, they're being put on these unpaid leaves of absence, which we say amount to dismissal. Well, the arbitrator in that case said that actually 
that's going too far. And he used the word unreasonable. And he said that, uh, that he said that on the basis that there are other more rational, less drastic solutions to the problem than denying these workers the ability to continue to work. Um, right. And that, is this the power workers union? Yes. Then? That is That's correct. where the, the gen- yeah. or the arbitrator said employees do not park their individual rights at the door when they accept employment. Yes, yes, precisely so. Yeah. So, so that's a sign. That's an encouraging sign that that um, and of course this refutes the theory that or the opinion, uh, the legal opinion that these unions are are telling to workers about how arbitrators aren't aren't going to listen. Clearly, this arbitrator did listen. In my respectful view, got it right. More recently, uh, we're hearing of uh, some unions, and I think they deserve credit for this, who are starting to take up the cause on behalf of their workers, even the unvaccinated ones. I received a letter today from a union called the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, short form is IBEW. And uh, this letter is dated November the 11th, 2021. And it, uh, it levels a series of very pointed questions, six in all, at the employer. And actually, what they're doing is they're asking the workers, the members of that union, to sign something called an attestation, which is a sworn, basically a sworn statement, uh, surrounding the the idea of informed consent. Um, And the types of questions that are being asked of, of the employer by the union are as follows. This is one example. Number one is, with other countries comparable to Canada now forcing their citizens to have third and even fourth shots of the COVID vaccine to be considered fully vaccinated, what is the carrier's position on continuous booster shots to remain compliant with the current policy? So that's one example of the types of pointed questions. And really, in my in my respectful view, this is the, the proper role of a union, is to take up the cause and represent the interests of workers, even unvaccinated ones. And uh, it's pleasing to see that some of the unions are now coming around to do this. Um, it's my opinion that uh, unions and many employers are under immense pressure that's coming from government. In fact, I would say it's coming primarily from the prime minister's office. Right. Uh, How would they apply that pressure? That's what I don't understand. Well, first of all, the starting point is the under the Canadian Constitution, health is an exclusive provincial authority. And, and you, some of your listeners may or may not understand this, but our constitution, what it does is it sets up a federal system where the federal government has power over certain things, the provincial government has power over others. Uh, for example, um, the federal government has power over criminal law and uh, maritime and policing our, our national borders, things of that nature, the, the postal service. Provincial governments, on the other hand, have primary responsibility over things like education, natural resources, and health. What's happening is, in my opinion, is the federal government uh, knows that it has this very specific agenda behind vaccine mandates, which, as I say, have nothing to do, in my opinion, with health and have more to do with the liberty issue, where uh, the goal is to consolidate power in the federal government. And uh, what they're doing is they're promising all the provinces money to deal with really the most expensive issue that provinces have to undertake, and that is how to finance healthcare. Everyone in Canada, I think, is aware that we've got a serious problem in Canada with paying for healthcare, with an aging population and other things that we're facing. I happen to think that in most provinces, the real problem is, is wastefulness and bureaucracy, but uh, that's a topic for another time. But in my view, in my opinion, what's happening is the, is the governments are trying to do indirectly what they cannot do directly. There is no law in Canada mandating uh, vaccines. In fact, uh, there is a statement, uh, a legal opinion that the federal government has from 1996 from their own their own department, their own lawyers told them that they could not do it. No province, to my knowledge, has passed a law that mandates COVID-19 vaccines. I think that they're avoiding doing it because they know that it would be a huge constitutional uh, battle. It would be unprecedented. So I think what's happening is employers, public and private, are being pressured to impose these vaccine mandates to really impose a government program. A good example of this is in Alberta, where, as I say, and it's it's worth noting in our Public Health Act, uh, there was a constitutional challenge that the Justice Center actually undertook earlier this year to Bill 66, which was an amendment to our Public Health Act 
to expand the powers of the chief medical officer of health. And it did that. But one of the things that was taken off the table, one of the intended amendments was under Section 8, there there was to be the power to impose a vaccine mandate. That was taken out of the legislation, taken out of the amendments, I believe, because of the constitutional challenge that the Justice Center brought forward. So in Alberta, although the province has not come forward and imposed vaccine mandates, they they have imposed restrictions on businesses, restaurants, and things like that. For in terms of who can can enter, and now we've entered a phase where people have to be vaccinated, and they have to actually show a barcode, a QR code, in order to have access to places. And this applies to even children and parents trying to get into hockey arenas and things of that nature, public buildings. So um, you could see there is an agenda at work, and the government is executing it. The governments of Canada are executing it through uh, in indirectly through private business and in effect conscripting private and public business to do the government's dirty work in my, that's my view, but there are promising signs. I don't want people to listen and think that this is discouraging. Overall, I think the needle is moving. I think that Canadians are Which becoming needle, the one more you put more in your arm or the, uh, sorry, <laughs> I said yeah. the needle is moving. And I'm yeah. Like, oh, I think it's moving in the right, in the right direction. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Most Canadians are aware of the attack that's being made upon language and censorship in Canada. You know, there are words that governments, especially the federal government, are trying to take out of circulation completely. And, uh, you know, it's, it's important to understand that these rights that we have, our charter rights, our statutory rights, human rights, these are not granted to us by government. These are enshrined in our charter. The charter says... Uh, uses the term God. Okay, that's right in our charter, the God and the rule of law. That's the source of our charter rights, not governments. They can't be taken uh, or given out by governments. Unfortunately, there is an attack on this concept. And those of us, uh, and I say us, I mean all Canadians. And because, you know, those of us who are fighting these, we're not just fighting on behalf of the unvaccinated. Uh, As this letter points out, Arguably, no one in Canada right now is fully vaccinated because third and fourth boosters are coming, and God only knows where this will end. I see us fighting on behalf of all Canadians. So I say us, I mean all Canadians who believe in freedom, who want to preserve and maintain and actually rehabilitate Canada to be a free and democratic society, because right now it would be tough to argue that we are a free society. Um, That if we're interested in this, we must speak our rights into existence. We must speak them. We must advance them. We must talk about them. We must go into courts for as long as we can and argue that they exist. And I'm starting to see this happening now, and um, I'm heartened by it. And I believe that that ultimately things like these vaccine mandates can be changed. We can prevent this from happening. We don't want to have a society where Canadians are walking around with these QR codes, like in China, and we're being socially graded by the state based upon our, our choices, even down to our, uh, the, how our choices affect our carbon emissions. And, uh, it, it sounds, that sounds like a conspiracy theory, but I can tell you a year ago, vaccine mandates were a conspiracy theory. Vaccine oh, yeah. passports were a conspiracy theory a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, people never expected that it would come to this. And I think all of us, most of us, uh, were too compliant too complacent during the lockdown restrictions. We had an understandable faith in the benign state because for a long time, Canada has been very well governed. I read a book recently by Conrad Black called The Canadian Manifesto. He talks about this in the book. We've been very fortunate uh, over, over the past several generations in Canada that by and large, we've been governed very well by principal people. And for, because of that, we've had a very free country. And we've had a country that has been overall largely trusting that our governments have had our best interests at heart. And so I think Canadians right now are having a hard time waking up to the reality that these governments do not have our best interests at heart. They are trying to consolidate power. And it is not for a purpose which is in our interest. I use the analogy of a movie, like a horror movie, like a Dracula movie. And you go, you're sitting in the theater 
And, uh, you know, Dracula comes out, you know, half the people in the theater cover their eyes. They don't want to look at the monster, but they're, they're comfortable. They believe they're trusting that before the movie is over, somebody is going to drive a wooden stake through the heart of Dracula and they're going to chop off the monster's head and the morning sun is going to turn it to dust. Well, it isn't going to take all of us in the movie theater, uh, but it's going to take enough of us to stand up and say, no, some of us have to stand up and fight the monster. And we have to stop simply sitting in the dark and believing and trusting that this is all going to go away and that things are going to go back to 2019. I believe that we are going to get to a better state of things in Canada and we will be better for this experience. Um, and I don't believe that these governments are going to be able to destroy Canada as a free and democratic society. I think we're going to be a better and more free and democratic society after this if we stand up for our rights and we, we enforce them as against our government. Unfortunately, that's the position we're in. Mm. If we do that peacefully, legally, in the Canadian way, if we extol Canadian values, we're going to get to a place, we're going to get to a place where we are democratically free again. But it's not going to happen automatically and the right. governments are not going to hand it back to us. So, well, so that's kind of a, a summary. I think what the, yeah. the vaccine mandates are really at the locus of this whole issue. They're part of a progression. Anyway, sorry, Kevin. I didn't no, I just you. wanted to clarify right now, it sounds by the way you've laid out the battlefield that the, the vaccine mandates are being fought by lawyers like you at, so the union level and the arbitration level, we're not talking about going into court and making filings yet, are we? Are we at that stage where we're making court filings on behalf of workers and things like that? Or are both things happening at the same time, perhaps? I'm not... I think both of them are happening at, at the same time. Some of the advice that uh, when I talk to people, there are some court actions that haven't filed. I know of some in Ontario, British Columbia. In Alberta, there's been a case, a suit that's been filed on behalf of some doctors over the doctrine of informed consent. I know at the Justice Center, I'm responsible for a case that's being brought after uh, on behalf of some very brave doctors who are really sacrificing their medical careers. Over, over informed consent, because really it's important to remember there's really no one who can provide informed consent to the taking of these vaccines. We don't know the short-term, let alone the long-term consequences of these vaccines. And there are uh, more and more emerging data showing that there is risk uh, to taking of these vaccines. But um, just to back up a step, Kevin, to answer your question, the advice that we tend to give our clients and of course, this will depend on whether or not they're unionized or non-unionized to some degree. But what we try and do is encourage people to exhaust their, I'll call them self-help options. So what are these? Number one, most often they are able to claim an exemption. I have to say that almost uniformly, these exemptions are not being, are not being respected. Uh, in one most horrific case, a woman who has worked for the Salvation Army, that's the Salvation Army, for over 20 years, was denied a religious exemption based upon her Christian beliefs. So that gives you an idea of the extent to which religious exemptions are being respected. The other one that people are claiming are medical exemptions, medical conditions, and um, those are, are generally being denied as well, and mainly because uh, these employers, whether it's government or private, they have their own doctors who are quite prepared to give the status quo opinion that these, uh, you know, that these vaccines are incredibly safe and that there's no risk. So even though the exemptions are not being granted, we're encouraging people to, to claim them and to put them forward because we must, uh, in my view, we've got to grind. We've got to throw everything at this. And um, th the manner in which those exemptions are denied may in and of themselves be the basis for a human rights complaint that might be relevant later. So we encourage people to claim exemptions. Having said that, I want to clarify one thing if someone's listening and thinking about doing this. Um, it's of concern to, to me that employers are asking for very detailed personal information in support of these exemption claims. I, I don't know what use is being made of these of this personal information. I can't say anything about, about that. However, it is of concern to me that this is being demanded. And I don't think it's necessary for a person who's claiming a religious exemption or medical exemption to reveal their private medical or religious uh, faith 
or details of that, or to have to justify, for example, their religious faith to the extent of a, to satisfy a secular test, that that should be, that should be required of them. I think that in and of itself is a, is a human rights violation. Right. However, would that be sort of along the same lines as questions they can't ask you when you're being hired? Yes. Okay. Precisely. Okay. Um, so, so I, we're encouraging people to claim the exemptions. Um, the second thing is if you are part of a union, grieve, grieve the issue, uh, complain about this, that it's a violation of your employment rights. That, for example, an unpaid absence without leave essentially amounts to dismissal because when you're sitting at home in your kitchen, there's no bloody difference between whether or not you've been fired or whether you've been, you know, and interestingly, just last week, the BC government passed an order in council uh, stating that um, for public employers, the refusal to take the vaccine or to comply with the mandatory vaccination policy is now just cause for dismissal. Okay, that's something that's just happened in British Columbia. That's very concerning. And it speaks to the danger of Canada as a country continuing to operate in a constant state of, of emergency uh, because Canada is founded and it's meant to run as a parliamentary and along a parliamentary democracy system. So this, uh, this removal of the ability of workers, of public workers in BC to sue the government over a dismissal resulting from uh, failure to comply with a vaccine mandate. That's, that's a legal right that's now been removed from thousands, maybe tens of thousands of workers. And that's done at the stroke of a pen. There's no debate in the BC legislature. There's no first reading, second reading, all that stuff we learned in high school social studies about how the Canadian parliamentary system is supposed to work. None of that. It's just, here we go. We're going to decide this right now. That's the type of thing that is of concern. And this is why I say, and I stress, this is a liberty issue that we should all be concerned about, about the way that these laws are being made. This is not the way Canada is intended to function. That's not a way, that's not the way a free and democratic society functions. Um, so in addition to the exemptions and the grievances, uh, we're also encouraging people to file human rights complaints. Now, interestingly, if, if anybody who's listening goes and logs on to their uh, the, the website for the Human Rights Commission, whether it's the Alberta Human Rights Commission or Saskatchewan or BC, Manitoba, they'll find a lot of, let's call it uh, information. I would call it misinformation that's been put on there. Uh, some, some of my clients have called it propaganda. That's not my word. Discouraging people from filing a human rights complaint on the basis of anything related to COVID. Oh, really? So that again, this familiar narrative that we've been hearing about how COVID-19 is this exception to all the things in Canadian law, really an exception to the rule of law, to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, is being put on these human rights websites. And it's even gone so far. I've heard uh, anecdotal uh, stories of people who've, who've called me and told me that where they've inquired, they've sent an email to the Human Rights Commission about filing a claim. They've had somebody call them up and actively discourage that, them from filing a claim. And the, the reason why is that so many people, and I'm thankful that they are doing this, so many people are filing human rights complaints that the system is backed up. And a lot of people maybe don't realize, but according to, to statute, every single human rights complaint must be investigated and adjudicated according to law. And so the province must give these time and attention and they don't have the resource to do it. And it creates a situation where if an employer is going to dismiss an employee over their refusal to comply with a vaccine mandate, they would have to do that in the face of a pending human rights complaint. And that's a weighty thing, or it ought to be. So this is why we encourage people to file these human rights complaints. And again, here we've already talked about three different things that people can do without hiring a lawyer, without the assistance of a lawyer. The forms, if you want to file a human rights complaint, are all available usually on the human rights uh, website. After okay. that stage, um, that's where we tend to enter in. And uh, we've entered this phase now with companies like CN, CP, Metrolink, some of the other ones that we are representing. Where well, you're representing are, the companies? Sorry, or you're representing the companies or you're representing the, the, employ the, 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 the workers? Yeah, okay. So invariably... The number one thing the workers want 
is not to get into a fight with their union, not to sue their employer. What they want to do is restore or rehabilitate the employment situation. They just want to work. They just want to be able to do their work and be left alone without being required to submit to these mandatory vaccinations. And so they're reluctant to sue. And they're, they're, we, what, what we've been instructed to do is to exhaust every possible avenue short of doing that. Because unfortunately, when you do sue some, an employer and you're a worker, um, you know, this is, this tends to destroy irreparably the employment relationship. So basically all things are lost. It's like filing for divorce. Occasionally there's a reconciliation, but it's, it's rare. But when we're dealing with workers, for example, uh, unionized workers, what we're trying to do is to have them press their grievances to get them through arbitration. And as I said, I'm pleased to see some of the unions are now standing up for workers and they're willing to take up that fight because I think that's a necessary thing. And so we're encouraging workers to try as far as possible to get the union on side because they're a powerful ally. And when you, when you have to sort of do an end run around the union as well, um, that's a difficult thing. However, uh, in some cases, we have been instructed where the unions have refused to take up the cause on behalf of workers to file labor board complaints. There was an example of this that was filed. One of my colleagues, Robert Hawks at JSS Barristers, has the case involving the Air Canada workers. And uh, they filed a labor board complaint along these lines. And uh, at the 11th hour, before the complaint was heard, the union came on side and they should be credited for this. And now they're going to take the grievance up. And uh, so that case now is an encouraging sign. And uh, we're preparing a number of these labor board complaints on behalf of workers uh, against their unions, really with the goal not to fight with the union, but to try to get them to take up the cause and advance their interests over these vaccine mandates with the employers. So that's part of what we're doing. In terms of being the workers, especially unionized workers, being able to sue their employers over this, that's a tricky thing because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the workers under the CBA, they contract out these rights to the unions. There was a case in Ontario a few, week, a few weeks ago where some nurses brought and they achieved, they got a court to grant a temporary injunction. An injunction is a stop order against the employer. The judge granted it, but it was adjourned for seven days because there was a question of whether or not these workers actually had the authority to bring that application. And a week later, the injunction was set aside because the UHN, the uh, the nurses' union, basically said correctly, according to the judge, that only the union could uh, had the authority to bring that case before the judge and seek an injunction because those rights, those workers' rights, had been contracted out to the union. Now, thankfully, shortly after that, and I'm not saying it's connected, but it seems rational, Premier Ford came out and actually exempted healthcare workers in that province from these vaccine mandates. But I, th- I think there is a connection there, at least I believe there is one. And it shows again what I'm talking about, about how people need to disabuse their minds of this idea that because one, you're only one individual, you can't make a difference. Actually, if you look historically, uh, the biggest differences are made by small, very, uh, very committed minorities and great things can be achieved. If you're united and if you're steadfast and if you're stubborn, if you stand up for what you believe in, it doesn't take everybody to change this. It just takes, you know, enough. So, um, that's another example of an encouraging sign. So part of our goal is to pursue these labor board complaints to try and get the unions activated, get them involved. One of the things though, one of the realities is that it's not possible for unionized workers to sue the employer directly, let's say for a wrongful dismissal because those employment rights are contracted out to the unions. Having said that, one strategy that we are uh, looking at seriously and that we are developing is the concept of having workers sue the employer uh, for violation of human rights. Because, of course, human rights are constitutionally entrenched, as are statutory human rights under provincial and federal human rights codes. These are not contracted out to unions under a CBA. An example would be for you can't contract yourself into slavery. That's not an enforceable contract. 
So by extension, these human rights attach to individuals and uh, are not bargained out to the union. So in my respectful view, it is possible for workers, even unionized workers, to sue the employer for for human rights violations because these vaccine mandates, in my view, are human rights violations fundamentally. Right. Um, and you can look no further for support in this uh, than looking at the Nuremberg Code. Some of the listeners might be aware, probably aware, presumably are aware, hopefully, of the Holocaust. And as part of that, as part of the Holocaust, sadly, there were heinous medical experiments that were carried out by Nazi doctors. In the aftermath of World War II, there were a series of trials, high-profile trials called the Nuremberg Trials. One of them involved a group of doctors who had conducted medical experiments upon, upon prisoners at these camps against their will. And um, out of that trial, some of those doctors were convicted and sentenced to death. Others were sentenced to prison. A few were acquitted. But what came out of that is something called the Nuremberg Code. If any of your listeners Google this, they'll find it. And it basically says it enshrines the doctrine of informed consent that no person, it's a fundamental human right, no person can be forced to take any medicine uh, without their consent. And so we say that that is a fundamental human right that's recognized internationally, and it's also recognized under Section 7 of our Charter. Even where the Charter doesn't apply, uh, it, it is also recognized uniformly under provincial and federal human rights codes. So it's our view, uh, the position that we're taking on behalf of our clients, is that we can sue employers for violation of human rights and can seek damages, punitive damages against them for things like assault, intentional infliction of uh, mental suffering, and the like, not necessarily relating directly to the employment relationship, but for damages resulting from these vaccine mandates and the harm that they're causing. And, you know, this is not to be underestimated. I know some of your listeners are probably aware of the extent to which lockdowns have had unintended effects. Basically, that the lockdowns have caused more, have done more harm than good. When you weigh the impacts of them upon individuals and upon society versus any measurable difference they've made in terms of reducing the, the spread of COVID-19. Well, How does that vaccine mandates are the same way. Oh, okay. The people are, uh, many people are so uh, aggrieved by this that uh, they're taking stress leave. They're, un- they're unable to, to work or to handle. Uh, this is a very stressful thing to have your employer come along suddenly and say, you must inject this into your body or else you no longer have a job. And uh, of course, many Canadians, working class Canadians, they need that job to support their family and put food on the table, take care of their, of their kids or to save for retirement. So this is hitting Canadians directly where they live it's not by accident. It's by design. And as I say, I think it's fundamentally a liberty issue. And I know some people don't want to hear that. They think that COVID-19 is is this uh, incredible disease, unprecedented disease that's out to kill us all. Well, there's a paucity of evidence. There's very little evidence to support that theory. Uh, when you look at the actual rational numbers of how many people have died, the, the, the truth is, the reality is, that the vast majority of Canadians, especially young people, have nothing to worry about from COVID-19. But everyone in Canada, the, these vaccine mandates affect the vast majority of Canadians across the board. Most Canadians are part of the working class. Canada is a working class country. And that's who's being hit by these vaccine mandates. And they're right. getting hit very, very hard. I can tell you uh, I'm receiving between two and 300 emails a day uh, from from people who are impacted by this, and they simply don't know what to do. They feel betrayed, they're frightened, and some of them are suffering now serious mental health and physical health consequences. You know, can um, I just so, go back a second here and, sure. and talk about these suits based on human rights violations? Yes. Are you suing the government there? Or are you going after the companies there? That's what I was wondering. I didn't quite well understand. Both. the The charter would only be available. Mm-hmm. In a situation where uh, there's a government actor, and uh, maybe some people don't understand this about how the charter works, uh, the the charter is designed to protect the individual's rights uh, as against 
the actions of its government. Now, it doesn't necessarily need to be direct government action. Let's take the case of CN or CP or Air Canada. In those situations, there's a ministerial order that's coming uh, from the government of Canada, and that qualifies as government action. So a worker in that situation would be able to avail themselves of the charter. And the same would apply if you are working for uh, a government employer and arguably also if you are working for a university because there is case law, uh, Supreme Court of Canada case law, that depending on the circumstances could regard someone who's employed by a university. The university can be regarded as a government actor given the extent of funding that universities receive and the control the government's exercise over curricula and the like. Now, um, where and so where an individual is employed by a government actor, or let's say a public corporation is the best example, then they would be able to claim a violation of the charter. An example of this type of litigation came up a few years ago in a very high-profile case uh, involving a man named Omar Khadr. Um, he was someone who was a prisoner held at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. He was a Canadian citizen. He brought a lawsuit against the Canadian government based on the charter that his life, liberty, and security of the person had been violated. And the argument, as I understand it, ran along the lines that the Canadian government should have done more to, and sooner to have him removed from Guantanamo Bay. And ultimately, uh, Justin Trudeau, I believe, in the first year or so of his prime ministership of Canada, settled with Mr. Catter, and he was paid over $10.5 million. So that's an example of constitutional litigation that can result in punitive damages being awarded to someone. So uh, that's the type, that type of litigation can be brought against a, uh, a public employer where the charter applies. If there is a private employer, there are provincial uh, human rights statutes that would still apply. And the same goes for, uh, for there, there, there are federal human rights statutes that would apply. And so that in, it's our view that the same type of litigation would be available against employers who commit human rights violations against workers. And uh, vac- the vaccine mandate being an example of that. Right. And you've developed this argument. Have you actually applied it yet in any cases? We, well, there are cases, as I said, uh, there are cases uh, developing. Uh, we haven't yet sued anyone along those lines, but that's okay. that's on the horizon. The reason why we haven't sued anyone yet is because, as I, I mentioned earlier, we're still in the phase where we are doing our best to save these jobs. That's what these clients really want. Right. They want to save their jobs, and they'd really rather not sue their employers. They don't want that. They want to go back to work, and they want to be left alone. They, they're even Most of them are willing to reach some type of uh, compromise uh, with their employer that would uh, deal with the perceived occupational health and safety concern, whether it's, uh, you know, periodic testing or just common sense measures. Like if you have, if you're feeling sick, stay home or even periodic, there, there are a whole host of rational measures that can be taken and have been taken for a very long time before we, we met COVID-19 uh, to secure the health and safety of workers. And uh, most employers are very, very good at this and have sophisticated, well-developed, highly functional systems to protect the health and safety of workers, uh, which fall well short of of getting rid of excellent, loyal, hardworking people simply because they don't want to have their bodies injected with a bioweapon. Okay, so you're at the point now, you had mentioned earlier that when the lawsuits happen, that's when you're given up on the job, basically. That, that's well, the divorce. Right? Yeah, so. I think uh, it'd be very, t- I think the problem with litigation is by the time you get to that point, the, the sides are so entrenched, you know. And the other thing about litigation is, of course, it's, it's very expensive. The Canadian uh, legal system, civil law is a, sadly a pay to play system. There are nowadays, Thankfully, crowdfunding options, uh, the, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms is one example where uh, worthy causes situations. Of course, the Justice Center can't take on every single one of these cases. There are other crowdfunding options, however, that are ongoing uh, to help people. But there is an expense. And of course, litigation, when you're suing a large multinational corporation or the government of Canada or a provincial government, 
you're suing a party that has enormous resources, almost limitless resources, and they do have the ability to protract litigation. And that is that can be a very effective uh, strategy, particularly where, you know, for example, you have unionized workers who do not have the support of their union. Right. Okay. I do want to ask about one particular case uh, because this I actually promised somebody I would ask you this when I finally sure. got to talk to you. Yeah, it was regarding that uh, interview you did uh, some while back where you talked about the New Brunswick Labor mm-hmm. Board decision. You initially said that this looked quite hopeful, and I'm wondering, did that pan out? Because you had just received it right. at the time. Yes, uh, so just- uh, I'm glad you asked me about this. Uh, that video, I don't know if it qualifies as, as viral, but I understand that it it got over a couple hundred thousand uh, views. And in one sense, I'm grateful that it did because um, uh, it, it did raise awareness. However, unfortunately, the information that I was provided about that case was inaccurate in that although the, the Labor Board in New Brunswick uh, did grant an injunction, it was not on the basis of, van- of vaccine mandates. It was on the basis of another issue. That's not what was the information that was provided to me uh, at the time. And, uh, of course, that was Rebel News uh, actually uh, published a clarification of the story and they took down uh, the video. But, of course, uh, through the magic of the Internet, it made its way onto YouTube and Rumble and other yeah. uh, places. Okay. As I said, in hindsight, I, I'm, I, you know, I've had to write a lot of emails clarifying the issue. And I regret very much if anybody was uh, misled. It was an honest mistake. Having said that, you know, it, it was a, a blessing in disguise in that I've been able to, I've been contacted by a lot of people who really need help. And uh, it's been, it's opened conversations where I've been able to talk to people and point them in, in certain directions where, where perhaps they felt like they couldn't do anything. And now they feel like there are some measures, some steps that they can take to try and take action. One of the most debilitating, frightening things in life, and we all know this, is being in a situation where you feel powerless, where right. something is happening to you, you just don't know what to do. And oftentimes I find in speaking to uh, Canadians about vaccine mandates, uh, they just need a little bit of encouragement and just need to be filled with the sense that, okay, well, so what can I do? You mean I can apply for that or I can file a human rights claim? And it, it's a funny thing. I think it's in human nature. I'm no psychologist, but I think it's true that uh, if you can take action, if you can do something actively, uh, it, it is empowering. It makes you feel better. As I've said, you know, the action of one person uh, so many times been proven throughout history. The actions of one person, you just don't know where that could lead. I mean, right. Think of a Mahatma Gandhi or a Martin Luther King, or for that matter, Sir John A. Macdonald, without whom I don't care what anybody says, there wouldn't be a Canada. Right. Well, yeah, action will turn you away from despair. So, and in regards to the New Brunswick thing I asked you about, I guess no no such thing as bad publicity, I guess. Eh? <laughs> That's WC Fields, I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Uh, we've got about, uh, well, just over 10 minutes left. I wanted to get to the Alberta case, the Alberta sure. case, because, of course, you're directing that, mm-hmm. and you were the one who actually forwarded all the documents to me at one yeah. point. Thank yeah. you for that. With that, we were able to put them on the website. Where are we at with that case right now? So you're speaking of the of the Ingram case uh, over right. the lockdown challenges? Yes. Yeah. So, yes, this case has been ongoing for uh, about a year now, and it's gone through different stages. There was immediately an injunction application that failed where uh, we tried to get an injunction preventing the government of Alberta from imposing lockdown restrictions that, um, that we've lived through really uh, almost constantly since but for a brief reprieve uh, during the summer after Mr. Kenny told us that, you know, COVID, we were COVID free forever. So went through that stage. And then we went through a series of applications during which the, the lawyers for the government of Alberta took apart uh, parts of our application and uh, had uh, certain pieces of evidence struck out. Some arguments were struck out by the court. Uh, so it's been whittled down to the point where we filed affidavit evidence, that's sworn written evidence, basically of expert witnesses. So the way this case stacks up right now is the defense side, or I should say the applicant side, uh, our side, we have our scientific experts. The government has their experts. 
All of that evidence has been filed in, as I said, written form. It's with the court. We have uh, a justice uh, who's been assigned to the case, uh, Justice Romaine. And so there was to be a hearing in the latter part of September over a period of about 10 days when the lawyers for each side were going to have an opportunity to conduct what's called cross-examination on the affidavits. Cross-examination meaning you get to ask questions of the people who've provided this evidence. And uh, that was scheduled for the latter part of September. However, on the eve of the hearing, a health emergency was declared in Alberta. And and unfortunately, we were told that um, really the key figure in the whole hearing, arguably, who's uh, Dr. Hinshaw, the Chief Medical Officer of Health for Alberta, uh, was going to be unavailable indefinitely because of the ongoing health crisis. And so the the case was adjourned. Um, And that was by agreement of both parties. Uh, Neither party really wanted to, uh, especially us, we didn't want to proceed in the absence of Dr. Hinshaw, really thought that that would be pointless. In any case, what happened was it was adjourned. We've now been able to fix a new hearing date for the end of February. So that case is going to be heard in the latter part of February. Their lawyers are going to be able to question our experts, who include uh, a man named Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who I referenced earlier, and also a doctor named Dr. Martin Coble. There are also some other witnesses. That case on the applicant side is a joint effort as a lawyer named Jeffrey Rath, who has a number of high-profile cases. He's steering that one along with a lawyer at his firm named Martin Raymond. They're both excellent lawyers. Uh, they're working on that side of the case. They have some other witnesses, including uh, Colonel Redman, uh, who is a person of some renown now because of his opinions about Alberta's uh, emergency preparedness. Also working on that case with me is a fine young lawyer out of my office named Tamar Obedat, and uh, he will be assisting me with the conduct of that case. So when that case comes to hearing, it's going to involve cross-examination. And uh, a big part of our case is going to be uh, cross-examining the, the government's own witnesses, expert witnesses, but in particular, uh, Dr. Hinshaw. So that will right. be finally our opportunity to ask Dr. Hinshaw very pointed questions about the decisions that she and the government of Alberta made concerning the lockdowns. The, the key issue, the key question in that case from our point of view surrounds whether or not what the government did violated the, the charter rights of Albertans, our charter protected freedoms of, of Albertans, including freedom of religion, including uh, the right to life, liberty, security of the person. Because, of course, as part of the lockdowns, there were restrictions on people's ability to attend church and worship, and also severe restrictions of liberty, really unprecedented restrictions of liberty over extended periods of time. And it's important to note that during the period of of those restrictions, um, the government of Alberta never really disclosed the science behind what was being done to Albertans. And uh, this is something that Colonel Redmond talks about in in his evidence. But in any case, the the real question is, number one, were the Charter Protected Freedoms of Albertans violated by government lockdown orders? That's question number one. And secondly, is what if if those Charter rights were violated, which, by the way, is not being conceded by by Alberta, it was conceded in the BC case uh, that was decided by Chief Justice Hinkson earlier this year and was also conceded in the Manitoba decision, Mr. Justice, Chief Justice Shoyal's decision recently. The charter violations were conceded in that case as well. In Alberta, uh, the, the, the government of Alberta is not conceding that these lockdown restrictions violated uh, Alberta's charter rights, which to me is it's just, it's, it defies words, uh, that, right. that assertion. But anyway, the second part of it is if those charter rights were violated, were those were those violations justified, demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society? Because the way our charter works, there's a saving provision, if you will, under Section 1 that the government can rely upon to say, in this case, their argument would be that there was an overarching health and safety concern that essentially justified 
these measures and that these were least intrusive measures, reasonable measures that, uh, that were in the broader interest of the public, which outweighed and justified violation of the individual rights and freedoms of Albertans. So that's the essential question that the court is going to have to address. And what that's what we're going to be asking, you know, questioning Dr. Hinshaw about when we get to cross-examine her in, in February. Thus far, uh, the problem that we faced, when I say we, I mean lawyers who are advancing these cases, is that um, courts have been very ready to presume the reasonability and the justification of governments in the face of a pandemic. So courts have been very easy to, uh, very quick to presume, first of all, the existence of a pandemic and that that justifies a serious health risk to to the public. And uh, courts have thus far been very reluctant to second guess the wisdom of legislators, of governments, about uh, measures that they've taken to prevent the spread of COVID-19. That was the original one, remember? I think mm. we're into over 620 days of flatten the curve. Now the mantra is we have to protect the healthcare system. And so courts have been reluctant to question uh, what the government has done in order to protect the healthcare system. My question is, why is protection of the healthcare system more important than protection of the individual rights and liberties of Canadians or Albertans? That's the question that we'd like the court to answer. And more importantly, we'd like the court to look at the science, the science that's being put forward by the government of Alberta versus the real world science that's being presented by by the applicants in this case, and actually make a determination about whether or not the government's case on the science shows that the steps that they have taken, these Severe lockdown restrictions, which everyone can see have caused more harm than good, whether those are demonstrably justified scientifically. Uh, what happened in the Manitoba case, I'll just comment on this for a second. I've read that case and I know that that case is going to be appealed. Oh, you do? Yes. I happen oh, to know that. I have an inside track because there's an excellent lawyer who's been a guest on your show, yeah. uh, whose initials oh. are AP, That's Allison. Great. Mm-hmm. She's handling that case, and uh, I've consulted a little bit on that case. And uh, my reading of that decision, Justice Joyelle's decision, the nub of it is he was not prepared to uh, put on the hat of a scientist. He basically said, "Look, I'm you know I'm a legal expert, I'm a judge, but however, I'm not a scientist. The court cannot be expected to be an arbiter." Of scientific issues. In other words, I can't break the tie. I can't decide whether the government's science is better than than the applicant's science. And to me, with the greatest respect to Justice Joyal, he's a very respected jurist, Chief Justice of the Manitoba Court of Queen's Bench. Uh, in my respectful opinion, I think that sidesteps the core issue that needed to be decided in that case. I understand why he took that route in terms of his legal reasoning. And I'm not saying that that was necessarily wrong or improper or politically motive or anything like that. But I think uh, I was disappointed to see that because I was really hoping that the court there would really tackle the core issue. And that is based upon the science, based upon nearly two years of looking at COVID-19 very carefully, we we know a lot now about COVID-19. We know a lot about how it impacts. We know a lot about death rates. We know about infection rates. We know about asymptomatic and symptomatic spread. We know about the difference between outdoor and indoor risk. And we also know a great deal about the impacts of lockdowns. And I was really hoping in the Manitoba case that the court would really talk more and focus more about these unintended impacts of lockdowns and that there would be more of a measuring, a weighing of the impact of the lockdowns uh, versus the risk to public safety from COVID. And the way I read that case, I really don't see that the court fully addressed that. And that's disappointing. However, the result was disappointing. However, it does inform our approach to the Alberta case. 
no doubt the Alberta lawyers are going to be relying upon the Manitoba case heavily because the facts and the evidence are so are so close, they're so similar. However, what we're going to be endeavoring to do is to try and focus the Alberta court's attention on these core issues and try to get the court to actually look long and hard at the science that the government is presenting uh, versus what we are presenting. Yeah. We're presenting real-world science about the effects of COVID-19, the risk of spread, uh, the risk of death, and the harmful effects of lockdowns. Our expert evidence presents that case. The government's case really doesn't do that. The, right. the government's right. case really does not present an authoritative opinion about the risk of asymptomatic spread. They present a lot of modeling, the type of modeling that's actually used in, in weather, you know, to predict the weather and, and climate change. Um, and they, they, it's not really based upon real world science. It's based upon projections of how the healthcare system is going to be overwhelmed by COVID-19 cases. Sound familiar? Yeah. Right. So that's, and that's really not in our, in our, in our submission, that's not persuasive. That doesn't meet the test for demonstrably justified. And I'll just mention, I watched a recent podcast. I don't know if you, if you caught this, but the last surviving premier who was at the table when the charter was created and signed is Mr. Brian Peckford of Newfoundland. And I caught a, a recent uh, podcast where he was talking about this and he's appalled. He's appalled at the way that section one that I described, the saving provision, this demonstrably justified provision is being applied or is being used by governments and by courts. And he says, he says uh, quite authoritatively, I think, since he was at the table at the time, that the way that this is being applied uh, is, is the wrong way around and was never the intention of the framers of the charter to have section one applied in this way where essentially whatever the government is doing is presumed to be okay. Right. That's not, in fact, the test is the other way. The onus is on the government to demonstrably justify right. the infringement of Canadians' charter rights and freedoms. And Mr. Peckford thinks that really that test has been inverted improperly so that the onus has shifted to the applicant uh, to show that what the government is doing is is wrong, and that was never the intention. Right. Yes, well, I uh, I don't know if you heard a few shows back, I was actually lobbying to get rid of that phrase out of the Constitution, John said. I, you know, the Americans battle. don't have it. The Americans yeah, don't have it in their Bill of Rights, and I quite agree with you. Oh, I think what... it's been, the use of it has been, uh, I think it's been, it's been inverted. Uh, it's, and, uh, and even from, if you look at the early charter legislation, or sorry, the early charter cases, going back to the Justice Antonio Lemaire and the Brian Dixon days, uh, the early charter, Big M, Drug Mart, and some of those cases, there, the, the mantra around charter interpretation was to give it a broad and purposive interpretation. They were breathing life into these rights, not restricting them, Apply breathing life into them so that uh, they became meaningful. We went through that period in the develop the early period of the development of the charter, and now what we're seeing is a is a pro, is a restriction, a, a protraction from that, a retrenchment from that, and um, that's that's unfortunate. It's disappointing. However, these cases, this is how the law moves, and just because we may be losing at the early stages of these. It uh, doesn't mean that the appellate courts or the Supreme Court of Canada are going to share the view of uh, Mr. Justice Joyelle or Mrs. J Mr. Justice Pinkson in, in BC or Madam Justice Romain. So this is how, this is why we have a system in Canada of appellate courts. And uh, we expect that these cases are going to make their way through and are likely to going to go all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. And it will be very interesting and informative to watch how they grow and how they transition through the courts. But ultimately, the courts will rule, and and uh, those of us who are prosecuting these cases are confident that in the end, the right decision is going to be made, and that is that that these lockdown restrictions will be seen for what they are. I think most Canadians now it'd be interesting. I'd like to see a poll today versus a year ago 
how many people today think that lockdown restrictions were necessary. Uh, I dare say that um, a lot of the Canadians who a year ago were going into Christmas were much more trusting of, say, Dr. Tam, Mr. Trudeau, or the provincial premier, as opposed to today. I think they're, and, you know, Dr. Bhattacharya talks about this. He says that the greatest tragedy, the the greatest surviving tragedy of the COVID situation, if we can call it that, is the loss of confidence, public confidence in the public health system. Because he's, he's a public health guy. That's what he does. And he says the purpose of the public health system is to provide reliable information to the public that they can use to inform decisions that they're making about their health. And, you know, the biggest risk, I mean, the biggest risk, and Dr. Bhattacharya says that is, is okay, COVID-19 did not turn out to be the existential crisis that we thought it was going to be. Um, Most people would agree with that now. But that doesn't mean we aren't going to have something like that. That doesn't mean we aren't going to have something like an Ebola, where we actually do need to do all these restrictions in order to protect the public. And when that happens, when we do get a a very serious virus that has the capability to kill millions and millions of people, um, about half the population right now, based upon recent polls, are going to disregard that information as unreliable. And that's very, very frightening. And that, that ultimately, sadly, has the potential to cost millions of lives. So I think that's the greatest, I think that's the greatest tragedy of COVID-19 of the whole experience, apart from, well, the way that it's been weaponized as a political agenda, you know, the great, and I think anybody who's skeptical about Justin Trudeau's intentions around the great reset, uh, anybody who's skeptical about that now really is not paying attention in my humble estimation. Okay. Well, it's probably a great place to call an end to episode 40 of Justice with John Carpe. Thank you so much, Leighton Gray, and I hope to speak to you again soon. It's my pleasure.